Mormon Matters Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation and is seeking to build financial support separate from Mormon Stories Podcast. All donations to Mormon Matters are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonmatters.org. All right, now, twin studies with human beings. The question is, does homosexuality run in families? Absolutely, yes. So when there is one, uh, either male or female, who is gay or lesbian in a family, the probability of having uh, another is about nine times greater than it is uh, for the population at large. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's genetic. Religion runs in families, politics runs in families. But a large number of studies have been done with twins. So I know of two in the United States, one in Australia, two at least in Scandinavia. And these studies then look at the degree of concordance among siblings, among twin siblings, with respect to sexual orientation. Concordance meaning if you have one child who's gay, what's the probability uh, that another child will be gay? So all of these studies, each one that I mentioned, comes to the same conclusion, which is that the greater the biological, biological connection between members of a family, the greater the degree of concordance of sexual orientation. So for identical twins, for monozygotic twins, the rate of concordance is about 52%. It differs among those five or six studies that I mentioned because there's differences in the way that they got their samples. If you if you sample from a, a group of people enlarged in homosexuals, if you go to the street parades, the pride parades, or some other way of recruiting where you have uh, a large proportion of gay people, you get good statistics. But uh, your, sub, your uh, population is subject to a, a ascertainment bias because it may not... Uh, be representative of the larger universe of gay people. But if you get your sample uh, from a random group of people uh, in which you're going to have fewer gay people represented, then you have less robust statistics. So the values that I've been quoting differ among these subjects, but the bottom line conclusion is all the same, is the same for all of them. When you do a twin study, what do you do? You look at the relationships among siblings in the family. Uh, what are the different categories? Identical twins, fraternal twins, non-twins, and non-biological siblings. When you go from identical twins to the bottom of that list, you find less and less concordance. Or to say it in the opposite direction, when there is a greater degree of biological relationship, there is a greater degree of concordance with respect to sexual orientation. The greater the probability, for example, that if one identical twin is gay, the other one is going to be also. Now, the conclusion of that is absolutely clear among geneticists. That is very compelling evidence that sexual orientation has a genetic basis. Now, the naysayers will say the following. Why isn't it 
why in every set of gay men, if one is gay, why isn't it true that the other twin will also be gay 100% of the time? In genetic language, the explanation is, whereas there must be a genetic basis for this, there is also an environmental effect. Now, what's very important, and if there's nothing else I could do to contribute tonight, it's environment in this situation does not mean social relationships with people outside of the body of the individual. Environment in this setting means some biological explanation in addition to the existence of a particular form of a gene. Now that introduces us to a, a topic called epigenetics. I want to defer talking about it for the moment. I just want to say that the uh, conclude again by emphasizing that the twin studies demonstrate that genes are involved without question. Now, one other, the most recent data that I've accumulated on the question of whether genes are involved uh, come because of the Human Genome Project, which has given us a total explanation of the nucleotide sequence organization of the in all of the human chromosomes in the genome the the complete set of genetic information that programs the development of a human being so uh, it's possible to do sophisticated studies in which you get a group of uh, a population of study persons and you look at the total of their DNA repertoire and ask, are there any correlations between sexual orientations and sexual orientation and particular regions of the chromosomes? And there are four chromosomes who have genetic regions known to be implicated. One is on chromosome seven, one on chromosome eight, one on chromosome 10, and importantly, another on the X chromosome. So the bottom line here is that there is evidence from sophisticated molecular level investigations that demonstrate that there is a clear genetic basis for sexual orientation. When, when people have looked hard for specific genes, especially those involved in the production of testosterone and some of the biochemical pathways involving steroid hormones and asked, can we find mutant variations of these genes in gay people? The answer is no, they don't show up. So because of the ability now to do sophisticated biochemistry, people are looking not at DNA itself, but the way DNA is packaged and the molecular structural environment in which the DNA is found in the cell and ask whether it's at that level that variation occurs, which determines whether a person is gay or straight. So again, the word for this is epigenetics. Epi means on top of or in addition to. If I were to uh, imagine this thought experiment, each one of you imagine one of your cells. You have to imagine it because you can't see it. It's too small. You have to have a microscope. Now imagine going inside of that thing you can't see and going inside the compartment, which is even smaller and you can't see, called the nucleus. And going in there, imagine in this a room in your house and you're walking in there, there are 46 molecules of DNA, but they're all tangled up as it were. They're not easily visible. In fact, this is a true statement, not, a, not an imaginative statement. 
If you were to take those 46 molecules of DNA, straighten them out, and line them up, one on top of another, 46 high, they would be 6 feet 8 inches long. Now that should boggle all of your minds. There's that much DNA inside a little compartment in a thing you can't see. All right, so there must be a terrific packing job to get all of that, to get six feet, eight inches worth of DNA into that compartment. So chromosomes, that is one molecule of DNA, one length of a double helix with a left end and a right end, to get all of those things packaged, DNA is wrapped around a group of molecules called histones. So you've got all of this DNA. It's wrapped around in this architecturally sophisticated manner. And you want the genes, you want genes to be able to be turned on and off. So epigenetically, the mechanism for this is add molecules to DNA, which turn the light switch off. Other molecules can come along and turn the light switch back on again. Okay. So please endure this lesson in biology. That was awesome. And is that why one twin of identical twins might just just this unpacking and... Your very perceptive answer, yes. Okay, so here we go. Sperm meets egg. Sperm goes into egg. Now you have a fertilized egg. And half of the genetic material contributed by dad, the other half from mom. You have two copies of the genome. Two copies of everything you need to make a human being. The cell divides. Actually, cell division is a misnomer. What you're really doing is multiplying cells. It's proliferation. So you go from the fertilized egg to two to four, et cetera, et cetera. If you took out the DNA from any one of those over several multiplications of cells and qualitatively and quantitatively compared the DNA, they would be the same. Every one of those cells we've talked about so far is an identical twin, if you will, of the fertilized egg. Now, at some point, things happen so that the cells diverge in their specialization. Some of them produce a kidney. Some produce a brain. Some produce a heart. If you look at any heart cell, any kidney cell, any brain cell, and check out the DNA, it's the same. Take the DNA out, remove it from its architecture, unwind it, look at the sequence of coded information, it's the same. So how can one set of cells produce the kidney, another brain, another the heart? And the answer is that these architectural structural difference, in other words, the epigenetic mechanisms allow in the heart cell just the heart genes to be turned off and turn off the kidney genes and turn off the brain genes and for the other cells a comparable kind of an expression pattern. So that's what people are doing now with the unreasonably small amount of money that uh, is devoted through the NIH and the National Science Foundation for studies of this kind. That's where people are looking to find the mechanistic explanations for sexual orientation. I'm almost done. I want to read one more comment from an antagonistic publication. Some studies hint at a biological component, but have not proven that same-sex attraction is simply an inborn or biologically determined characteristic. You can find that, if you want, online uh, at samesexattraction.org. I haven't proven. So, So what's the intellectual problem here? It's 
a call for perfection. This isn't proven because we don't know everything about it. The question is not, is there biological evidence for homosexuality? The answer is, absolutely, there's a huge amount of evidence. Is it complete? Absolutely not. Are there more unanswered questions than there are answered questions? Yes. But the right way to formulate the question is, is there enough information for us to be confident that underlying all of this, there is a detailed molecular explanation. And if we had the, if we had the same amount of time devoted to sexual orientation as we've had to say how the, bo how the body regulates glucose in the blood or how the various kinds of cholesterol affect the formation of plaque in blood, in blood vessels, if we had a similar amount of research expertise devoted to those questions, then we'd have a much greater uh, understanding of the details of the mechanisms. I hope that made a little sense, and I'm yes. going to shut up. And but let me throw in something about that. Um, when, they, yeah, when they say it's not proven, it's distorting things, because it basically is proven. I mean, the... We know there's a genetic component because we have these um, family studies. That right there proves that there's a genetic component to sexual orientation, sort of the twin studies. And when they say it's a theory, theory, it's like saying the theory of relativity is a theory. Well, it's a theory with an immense amount of data behind it and immense amount of applications that come from that theory that we're using every day in this world. And so without the theory of relativity, even if they can't prove it exactly to perfection, it's an extremely useful theory, and it also explains our world way better than a lot of other things. And so it would be ridiculous to say that we don't know if relativity exists, because that would be an absurd postulation, just like saying we don't know if the theory of gravity exists, you know, the, the physical theory of gravity. I mean, we know there's gravity, but... So it it really is a distortion to say that it's not proven to be genetic. It really is most assuredly genetic. Anyway, I just wanted to throw awesome, that in. Yeah. It's equivocation on the word like theory, which is in science to have it be a good theory. It's it's well established versus here's my work in theory. That would be equivalent to their hypothesis. And furthermore, there's no data showing the other side, but we should discuss a little bit about sexual flu um, fluidity just so we can come up with some of the arguments, but I'll come back to that. Um, we'll get to you in a sec. Now, Bill, are you going to do handedness and finger length at all? I've already done enough on handedness. Finger length, finger length is the following. Uh, it's, a, it's another bit of evidence in the quiver about hormonal effects. So uh, sex, uh, finger length is a sexually dimorphic trait. The way to measure finger length here is the ratio of the uh, second finger to the fourth finger, of the pointer finger to the ring finger, the ratio of the length. In women, that's about one to one because those two fingers tend on average to be the same length. In men, the ratio is two to four is less than one because men tend to have a longer fourth finger. This is known to be uh, programmed by testosterone. Importantly, it's known to exist in the embryo. You can measure this in unborn fetuses, and it's a stable characteristic of human beings by uh, at most two years of age. So you just can't invoke socialization to explain something like this. It's a sexually dimorphic trait. The ratio is about one to one in women. It's less than one in men. What are gay men and lesbians like? They are atypical for their sex. Uniformly, women are masculinized. Lesbians are masculinized in their finger length averages. Men 
it turns out are complicated a little bit because in some studies on one side of the Atlantic, the, uh, the ratios for gay men are feminized. On the other side, they're masculinized. But the reason for this is that it's the control groups that are different, not the gay people, not the gay men. Bottom line, finger length shows that LGB people are atypical for their sex. And what percentage of gay men present with the the more feminine equal length versus those who don't? I mean, it's not it's not a hundred percent. You have to take your study population and calculate an average. But it's and, it's quite significant. Oh, the statistics are all very robust. All right. Whenever I give this to an audience, everybody in the room starts looking at their fingers. And, and uh, of course, you can't look at any one individual and make a conclusion. You have to make this judgment based on a population. Okay. And so there are plenty of homosexual men who have the typical longer fourth finger. There's a range. Okay. And vice versa on lesbian women. Okay. And there are straight men who have the... Right. Female version. Right. Plenty of them. Okay. Yeah. All right. But just another another piece. Well, thank you, Bill. Sure. I want to I want to read a list. My this is my list of what homosexual sexuality is not. It is not a pathology, a disease, an illness, a disorder. It is not a weakness, susceptibility, inclination, predisposition, temptation. It is not a choice. It is not learned. It is not a passing phase. It is not a perversion. It is not an addiction. It is not communicable. Sexual orientation is a developmentally programmed human condition, which is graded. We can talk about that perhaps later on, so that all, all gay people are not the same with respect to their attractions for men and women. But this evidence is available. If somebody wants an accessible, you can read about it. You don't need to be scared off by the technicalities. Well, I'm done. Amen. So I kind of have been thinking a lot about how to formulate all of this information that sounds very complicated. And one thing that Dr. Bradshaw understands really well, but most of you don't, is probably how it all fits together because we don't all have a found a sound understanding of how embryology works and neurodevelopment. So I kind of want to just take what he just taught us, which is we have all these demonstrable differences that are in physical and brain structures between gay people and non-gay people. And just kind of formulate how that could have happened and likely how it did happen um, by just explaining it in the sense of how we developed, how all humans develop. So to start off with, he explained that we have all these dimorphic, sexually dimorphic features, okay? And our bodies have lots of these, right? We all know that men and women, males and females have different genitalia. And in humans, this is like really, really binary. I mean, most males have male genitalia. Most females have female genitalia. And there's a few who have something in between. But it's really pretty polarized. But then there's other features about our bodies that aren't quite as polarized. Like men tend to be bigger or taller or more muscular. And women have different features. They might have a smaller musculature and wider hips and anything like that. But all of these qualities are not quite so binary. Any one male might be shorter than the average female and vice versa. So these are getting into sort of secondary sexual characteristics that are physical that are trans but aren't quite binary. So in all these things um, Dr. Bradshaw was talking about, like the finger length, that kind of fits in that category. It's these are trends in a population. Most, you know, if you take the average of males, it's over here, and the average of females is over here. But within any one individual, you're going to have, you know, people along the entire range in both sexes. Um, when you get to the brain, you've got 
thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of structures and traits in your brain. And virtually all of these have sexual dimorphication, or I'm probably even saying that wrong, but they're all sexually dimorphic. And these are also more like the body. There's not too many of them that are totally binary. Most of them fall somewhere on a range. And so we could theorize that you know, men tend to be more likely just by nature to be interested in playing with G.I. Joes and as young boys and girls might be more interested by nature in playing with Barbies. And there's lots of exceptions and feminists hate when I point this out, but it's just undeniable that anyone who's seen two-year-old girls and boys, there's probably some gender stereotypical differences that can be based on the brain and these persist into adulthood. So we could call it, you know, the that some well-proven tendencies among girls to be more socially oriented and for boys to have different orientations. We think that there's probably a lot more interest in men's in fixing cars and obsessing about tractors and airplanes and more, you know, interest in females in paying attention to the latest in figure skating. And these are stereotypes and they don't hold for everybody, but it goes beyond just a cultural or an environmental impulse. There's actually brain structures that are in there that might impact all of these things. Dr. Bradshaw pointed out a lot of them that are well studied, these spatial perceptions that he pointed out. These are physiological things that um, manifest because there's a structure in our brain that's different, slightly different between men and women, males and females that is. But any one individual can be anywhere on that spectrum. So a totally heterosexual male might have certain traits that are typically female, and that's okay. Every one of us has a lot of both. So any one person is really a mosaic of male and female traits. It's just that males tend to have more of a higher percentage of male traits. Females have a higher percentage of female traits. But no one person is completely having a highly masculinized or a highly mas- feminized throughout all their traits, right? Mm-hmm. And another important point that we just have to realize is that we're all genetically coded to be both male and female. Every one of us has every single gene we need to become a complete male or a complete female with one exception, which is this little teeny tiny Y chromosome. That is the only difference that between being able to create a full female or a full male. And so you have to realize that we all have the genes genetic potential for everything, for both genders, and that's in there dormant. And so it's just this differentiation of both our bodies and our brains. And as Dr. Bradshaw pointed out, it's the testosterone that really triggers that or metabolites of testosterone. So, you know, we come together when we're um, conceived, the sperm and the egg, they come together, they start developing. And as Dr. Bradshaw pointed out, the Y chromosome kicks in, and if it does kick in properly, it's going to masculinize your genitalia, and it has almost 100% accuracy at that. Um, if it doesn't kick in, then the genitalia will become feminized with almost 100% accuracy, and this happens at a certain stage of gestation. Then all these other things in our bodies and in our brains, they happen at different stages. So we get feminized or masculinized at specific times in our gestation or in our life. We all know that there's a certain amount of masculinization and feminization that happens at puberty, right? And there's probably brain structures that are still being impacted at puberty. So theoretically, any of them, including sexual orientation, could have happened at any time, such as at puberty. But... All the evidence doesn't point to that. It points to prenatal. But the vast majority, or at least a lot of them, have their critical period in gestation. Now, what's critical period? Critical period is this time where it's going to go one direction or the other based on the presence of the right factors at that moment in time. And what the right factors most likely are is the testosterone of the metabolites and the exact finely tuned level. And we know that both males and females, when they're fetuses, there's testosterone and androgens and estrogens in the environment, and it's all about the balance. And so all of these 
traits that are dimorphic, that are every single part of your brain that's going to develop in a more masculine way or feminine way is going to be highly sensitive at a certain point in history. So no matter what happens to your body, your gonads, your genitalia, those can be 100% male or female, but at different times, your brain might go in a slightly more different way. You might be uh, have a female body, a female genitalia, but you might have this, you know, just because the amount of testosterone that particular day, for some bizarre reason, might masculinize a particular trait. And this probably happens to every fetus, right? But what's important is that this implies that the sexual orientation is probably likely going to happen at a very fixed time. Because there is an apparatus in our brain for sexual orientation. Just like there's a language apparatus in our brain. There's an apparatus that in our brain about how to throw a baseball. And it pulls together different parts of your brain to, you know, the motor parts, the visual parts, the processing parts. It pulls together parts of your different brains, just like an app on your iPhone pulls from different parts, different programs there. It just pulls from different parts of your brain and it creates an apparatus that is subsequently masculinized or feminized. So all these traits, such as throwing a baseball, such as your spatial perception, such as your appreciation for ballet versus auto mechanics, all of these things are in apparatuses in our brain and all of these apparatuses might be impact at critical stages of fetal development. That might be very short stages. They might be half a day or a day or two or three or a week. But subtle differences in the levels of testosterone can impact them. So what all these studies imply then is that there's a genetic, what I would call vulnerability to homosexuality. We know that because twin studies show that there's 50% concordance. So these twins who share 50% of the DNA, if one of them's gay, there's a 50% chance that the other one will be gay. But then, of course, why isn't he gay? Well, first, both of them inherited this possibility of being gay. There's likely a lot of people who don't have practically no genetic possibility of being gay. They probably inherited genes that no matter what happens to the fluctuations in their testosterone, they will probably heterosexual. But there's a substantial number who inherit a set of genes that might come to a gay outcome or a homosexual outcome. And the chances are that they are worked on upon factors during critical stages. And Dr. Bradshaw pointed out the epigenetic um, and that's a highly likely mechanism that um, just subtle differences in the position in the womb, um, one of them happens to get more nutrients or less nutrients or more testosterone or less testosterone from the mother or there might be a certain amount of stress that one of them gets that doesn't that happens to change, make these subtle changes in those short period where this we'll call the critical stage of development for this particular trait. And so none of this is proven exactly, but it's just simply how everything works in embryology in neurodevelopment. So we can't really say when this happens with homosexuality. We can't really say um, what genes are involved, but we know that there are some genes involved. We have some good ideas what the gene, where the genes might be located. We know that there's a critical period. We just don't know quite when it is. And we know that there can be a varied outcome, as Dr. Bradshaw pointed out, between the genes and the environment. And in this case, the environment is the environment within the womb, the fluctuations in the androgen levels that impact. And so we, you know, this kind of teaches it how it happens. I mean, like I say, this is all what we can pull together by all these studies and all of what we know about it, that it looks, it looks really, really strongly like it's a phenomena that's happening at a certain period during gestation to certain fetuses that have a genetic predisposition, and some of them have this outcome, and certain other factors might play a role, such as the maternal's environment that might have been impacted by things such as if she had other pregnancies in the past that happen to be male, 
she's having a different environment for this current male fetus that's acting in a different way and in this case is increasing its chances of having a homosexual outcome. So I just wanted to explain that it all kind of comes together and fits together if you put all these things together in the context of embryology and neurodevelopment. And these aren't particularly controversial ideas. This is just simply what every embryologist understands and and it's what every neurodevelopmental expert understands, that this is how the brain develops, this is how it works. There's nothing saying that this critical periods couldn't have been after birth or couldn't have been a puberty. Um, and there's nothing about that saying that it couldn't have been some social interaction causing it. I mean, the big brother theory, one would have easily wondered, well, is it because they're born and they notice they have lots of big brothers? Well, in this case, that's not proven, but you know, on a theoretical sense, we could have theorized, well, it could have happened after birth, but what we're just finding is that nothing is ever pointing towards anything after birth. We have experiences of people who, of parents who are observing their children. We have this um, interesting statistic that of all the children with gender identity disorder, at least all the male children who have gender atypical behaviors, uh, most of them don't turn out to be trans people. They actually turn out to be gay men, at least among this male set. We're observing child behaviors that later predict their eventual sexual orientation, right? Bill, in your thing before, you called that childhood gender nonconformity. Is that, yes. Is that the, still a, a in, in vogue term? Yes. Okay. Another really compelling thing about this testosterone and his actions on you know gay men or gay women is that we kind of see it's kind of makes sense to anyone who thinks about it that if there is a process that's based on lower testosterone levels at a certain time in gestation that it's possible that the lower testosterone might have just been during that critical stage and not impacted any other structures and so you that individual might have a like if it's a male that particular male might be born with a feminized sexual orientation structure meaning homosexual oriented towards males so that particular baby might have a homosexual orientation but it might have had all of its other structures relatively masculinized and so that's why we might see that there's some homosexual men who are very masculine in, in a lot of other ways, in their voices, in their um, interests. They're very stereotypically masculine, but they might have a homosexual orientation. But on the other hand, I think anybody who knows a lot of gay people would probably notice this possibility that there might be more of them who have feminine traits and feminine interests. And so you could hypothesize that those, that particular subset of homosexual men, for example, had even more of their structures feminized. And so their interest in musical theater that's so stereotypical might just be because they have a structure or structures that might play into what their interests are that was a little bit feminized by the same process that might have feminized their sexual orientation apparatus. And if you take a set of gay women and you look at their structure for interest in softball or sports in general, you might see that for a lot of them, that might have been masculinized too, sort of side by side. So it kind of implies there, yes, there's a lot of different pathways and that's why within the set of homosexual men or homosexual women, you get very masculine and very feminine. You get the full range. But you also see compared to, you know, if you take the man, compared to the heterosexual men, there's some who are, there's probably more feminine traits in general among a lot of them, right? But then you also get plenty of heterosexual men with a lot of feminine traits. And so they might have had their other apparatuses feminized, but not their sexual orientation, and so that's why you get these men who might – everyone thinks they're gay and they're not or you know, the men who are sensitive or the men who are very artistic or have these things that are very stereotypically um, 
associated with the gay community or fascination with Lady Gaga or musical theater. Um, so it could come from the same process, but just the reverse, where they're getting the feminization of these other features. And this could, this is going to be true of anyone. Everyone's going to have certain things that are feminized and masculinized, and they're going to have, everyone's going to have a mosaic, and it's nobody's binary. And I just want to point out that one more thing. There is yet another apparatus, and this apparatus is our gender identity. And this one is fairly independent of the sexual orientation and all the other ones, too. We have a sense, we are born with a sense that we are a male or a female. And that we, and this isn't just humans. I mean, every animal is born, it sort of knows if it wants to do male things or female things, right? Um, every mammal, that is. And humans, that's true, too. And we just, it becomes, um, it comes out of an apparatus, just like everything else, in our brain, and in this case, it was likely masculinized or feminized. And if a person has a body that's male but a feminized gender identity area in their brain, they're going to feel like they are a female. Okay, so a lot of these males who feel like they're females probably had their sexual orientation also impacted, so they might have a typical feminine orientation, meaning they're attracted to males. But not all of them. There's plenty of people who are later trans who didn't have their sexual orientation feminized. So they might transition, they become females, but then they're, I'm sorry, if it's the case of a male who becomes a female, but they're still attracted to females like Caitlyn Jenner. So it's just one more piece of that puzzle in our brains is the gender identity that works in kind of a similar way, although with different numbers and probably different genes because like I say it's the genetic predisposition that even makes what it is you know if we're talking about throwing baseballs right it's probably you know we could probably do studies and find that you know 10 year old boys are probably better at throwing baseballs than 10 year old girls and it probably goes beyond culture so we could test a set of lesbians and find out that they're you know they're probably better than most girls and probably as good as most boys at throwing the baseball and you can do a set of gay men and some of them are perfectly good at it and some of them are, you know, to do it in a way that is more common of the females. But when you're talking about throwing a baseball, if your father was a pitcher of the, you know, the, the Yankees and your mother was a champion shot putter, you're probably going to be good at it no matter how you turn out. But the masculinization process might make their sons a little bit better than their daughters at it, but probably they're all going to be better at it than anyone else, right? So the genetic predisposition probably trumps the sexual um, dimorphication but it's still present. They all move one way or the other at a lot of traits because of the sexual hormones. Mm -hmm. And once again, I know I'm pissing off feminists when I talk about that boys are better at throwing baseballs. And so I, I hope that my point isn't lost by that. Now, thank you. That was very helpful. And just it's such a complex, complex yeah. thing. And I hope I didn't make it even more confusing. I was trying to make it seem less confusing, but I'm afraid I did the but opposite. But you can just see how it all goes together, and, and it <laughs> definitely helps explain the, why there's no 100% correlation on all of these, or any yeah. of these. Yeah. And th then I should also talk about fluidity. There's, there's another thing that, you know, there's other parameters of every trace. So we have our sexual orientation, right? But we also have something that's very likely genetically programmed to, which is sort of how broad our sexual attractions are. You know, we all have, you know, everyone has sexual attractions based on a lot of things. You know, the object of our affection or the object of our attractions, we might be attracted to them because they're the right age, right? We're attracted to people who tend to be more or less our age and we're attracted to people who are have the right relationships to our family, mainly that they're not in our family, like we are, have this built-in biology to specifically not be attracted to people we were raised with in intimate family relationships, such as our mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters. And this is genetically programmed. 
But outside of that, there's a lot of factors that play into our sexual orientation. And I'm not talking about the male or female part of our sexual orientation, but our sexual attractions. What kind of ages, what kind of characteristics attract us. And this you know, happens to be something that's somewhat fluid, but there's some predictable trends. For example, um, most of us, when we were 18-year-old, weren't terribly attracted to 50-year-olds, right, or to 60-year-olds. But somehow when we get to age 50, suddenly we're finding that other 50-year-olds might actually be sexually attractive. And so that's sort of a normal evolution of our, you know, sexual attractions that is kind of predictable and extremely common, right? Um, But Lisa Diamond has done a lot of research about sexual fluidity in general, and I just want to discuss that one of the factors of sexual attraction is some of us have a broader range of things we're attracted to, and some people have a narrow, and that's just something that's likely just as inborn as our sexual orientation. And so some people might have a broader range of genders. They might be attracted to both, or they might be primarily homosexually attracted, but have quite a possibility for being attracted to the opposite gender and vice versa because they have a, by nature, a broader range. And some people have a very narrow range and they're practically, you know, not attracted to anyone. In fact, some people are virtually attracted to nobody. And and there's lots of evolutionary reasons why that would be, the, why this variations might occur and why one might be optimal in certain situations and another. But the point is, is there's just a really vast range. And so what um, Lisa Diamond has famously done a lot of research about is she's found that, or she's studied about how there seems to be a lot of people, more people who are, compared to how many people are really rigidly homosexually oriented, there's actually a larger number of people who are, actually bisexually or sexually fluid is a better term for it because they might at different times in their life have a capacity for one or the other or both. And so this is another thing that has sometimes been grabbed on by people arguing that you can change your orientation because she's noticed that there's this large group of people which happens to be larger than the group who are rigidly homosexual who do actually find that there's a change in their orientation. And I just want to point out that that's, once again, that's most likely something that was sort of born into them, this this possibility that they might, you know, have a broader range of, of attractions over their life course. And then you take the other factors of things evolve and things broaden just naturally by age or by certain experiences. But it's important to note that we have no control over that. You know, we cannot say to ourselves, okay, I'm sexually fluid, so today I'm just going to start being heterosexual. No, there's, there's no evidence that some sort of conscious decision at this point can be made even among bisexual or sexually fluid people, that they can suddenly turn it on or turn it off. It just doesn't happen that way. And that, so I just want to point out that this is a one distortion that's picked up by the those who say it's a choice. Um, it's still not a choice even among these sexually fluid people. But the sexually fluid people is only a part of them. There are plenty of people who just never really have any sort of bisexuality on both ends, um, heterosexual and homosexual. Right. Now, are you leaning towards uh, Lisa Diamond and fluidity? Uh, because you're covering a lot of the same material that people will probably be familiar with, with the Kinsey scale. Is there is it is she is her stuff triumph trumping his or? Well, the Kinsey scale. No, it, the the Kinsey scale is simply a scale um, that doesn't impact Lisa's either way. Lisa, I don't know if she particularly uses the Kinsey scale, but she's just pointing out that some people who at age 20, you know, really are primarily oriented towards one gender, might find that at age 40 they're suddenly falling in love with a gender they weren't expecting to. She's talking about that phenomenon that's, okay. that is being observed, but they're still, you could still say that, you know, they're somewhere on the Kinsey scale. 
It's just that they might not really realize where they are on the Kinsey scale. Like I could, like for me, you know, where do I put myself on the Kinsey scale? And am I going to take into account my full life, or am I going to take into account right now? Mm-hmm. But the point is, is nobody goes drastically. Nobody goes come from completely homosexual to completely heterosexual. Right. Nobody goes from completely heterosexual to completely homosexual. People just shift, you know, or broaden, you know, and that's. That's important. And the Kinsey scale is kind of weak to start with because it doesn't really tell us a lot. You know, that's another thing. Lee Beckstead has um, done some excellent descriptions that are more useful, which is you have attraction scales. You also have aversion scales. You know, we have um, homosexual people who are, you know, highly attracted to other men, but they're not particularly have no particular version to females, so they might actually have a better capacity for relationships with other with the opposite sex, whereas a, a different homosexual might have a huge aversion to females. I'm talking about gay men, so we have to... And I please apologize if I don't um, spend half... I should really use half my examples as gay women, but it sort of applies in the same way that they might have a huge aversion to the opposite sex. And a heterosexual, same thing. They might have a huge aversion to the opposite sex or they might not have much aversion at all. And so there could be a perfectly an aversion scale as well as an attractive scale and you put them together. And there's some interesting research about that. They found that they did a study comparing people who call themselves homosexual and people who call themselves bisexual. And the bisexuals actually had the same sort of responses to erotic images of men and women. In other words, they had a pattern where they were more turned on by male than female images. So these bisexual men and these homosexual men had the same, you know, in this study, had the same sort of response, excitement response, the physiological excitement to these images. And so what's the difference between them? Well, I would just theorize that in this case, the difference is the aversion scale. They obviously have a different set of aversions if one is just absolutely never, you know, in this case the male is never going to have a relationship with um, a sexual relationship successfully with a female versus these others who might not have so much aversion even though they might have more of an, an attraction or more of an erotic um, response to, to a female body, for example. So these are just all interesting observations that we're still trying to sort of figure out where they go. And like I say, there's just so many pathways of how people got there that are probably showing a lot of different ways that it presents once they do. So it's just nothing can be really highly simplified in that way. Thank you very much. Before we move on, can we just see if Dr. Bracha, if Bill Bracha has anything to respond to, like what I just threw out there, like there's something that sounds wildly off base or something. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure that I can contribute anything as a follow-up, with one exception. Lisa Diamond has um, talked about the relevance of biological explanations. One way to to formulate her question is: Is it is it useful to start the discussion? on biology or to formulate the statement, well, gay people are born that way. Lisa argues that our efforts at equality and our and a determination of whether or not we should be accepting and loving should not depend on what our view about the etiology of sexual orientation is. And I totally agree. But I do think it's important to have the discussion of causality. My context is Mormonism. I don't think that LDS people that I know wait to hear what the biology is before they make a accepting or rejection or rejecting response to their gay brothers and sisters. I think that comes primarily from the degree to which one is acquainted with gay people. And I believe that when we know, especially if we have gay family members, if you have a gay child, or if you are well acquainted with a gay 
a fellow employer or a neighbor, and you realize the goodness in their lives, the inherent decency, the lack of substantive differences between the way they conduct their lives and the way heterosexual people conduct their lives, then that makes a difference in whether you espouse equality or whether you uh, maintain homophobia. So to me, it's to me what causes homosexuality is a fundamentally important question, and you try to answer it for its own sake. And the least of the benefits are that that discussion tells you tells the parents of a gay child that nothing they did or failed to do is responsible for the orientation of their child. I'll just leave it at that. But I'd like to. But I'd like to just add to that a little bit. That I, I kind of, I do agree with Lisa, and I do agree with you that it should not be relevant. But I have to point out that it really is relevant in the minds of a lot of people, especially Mormons. And the idea that they can choose to be that way is kind of a common idea. And obviously knowing their gay children or their gay brother and sister and seeing how those predicting factors existed when they were two years old and some of them and and just knowing their experience, yeah, they get to that point, but they might get there a little bit faster just to realizing that they don't have a choice and that they're by fighting it, they're not going to do anything healthy for their mental health by trying to just resist this reality. And so in a way, I'm not sure I agree that um, we should take that out of the discussion, the fact that there is all this evidence of genetic contributions and and biological contributions. And I think uh, that even more so within the Mormon community or in other communities that are, you know, highly oppressive. Yeah, in Canada or in, you know, New York City, you know, these higher values such as, you know, self-determination might be good enough. But in Mormonism, right now, that's not a compelling argument to your average Mormon. You know, we should obey God and that's that. And um, God told us not to be gay, so we should not be gay. And that's sort of, I think that we do have enough evidence of this biology that it's fair to use it as an argument and it's compelling. And even though our rights for legal marriage shouldn't depend on it, the fact that all, everybody thinks we're born that way, you know, helped the public come around, and the public coming around helped the Supreme Court come around, and so I think that it's too bad that we can't go to higher values, such as just letting people self-determine and and respecting whatever the ideology is. But in the meantime, we do have a ton of data just showing, you know, just overwhelming, compelling data that proves to every medical body and every legal body and that it's you know that it's overwhelmingly uh, a genetic mixed with environmental factors beyond our control that determine our sexual orientation thank you for joining us today on mormon matters podcast to discuss this podcast with others please check us out at mormonmatters.org keep this podcast alive or to join our support community please consider a tax deductible donation today at mormonmatters.org music for this podcast was brought to you by Brittany and clayton pixton the mormon matters logo was generously provided by studiocase.com thank you for listening